seat. If you take your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you were here last week, we started looking at a thought from both 1st and 2nd Peter about a word that Peter uses over and over again. We looked a little bit at Peter's character, who he was, and what we know about him, and it's an intriguing word that he uses several times in the two books that he writes, and that is the word precious, the word precious. And there are several different things that Peter lays out in his book, and he says they are precious. There's something to be highly valued, something to be esteemed. And we looked at two of them last week. If you look at in chapter 1, verse number 7, Peter makes the statement that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perished, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We looked at the thought that Peter said the trying of our faith is precious. Uh, And the Jewish people that he was writing to, the Christians that he was writing to, were undergoing a period of intense persecution under Nero, under the Roman Empire. And he says it is a precious thing that your faith is being tried. He compares it to that of a gold worker working with precious metals and how you heat them and how you remove the impurities from them. And he likens that to the trial that they are going through, that that purifying process. Uh, we're, We're reminded of what Job said, that when he was tried, he would come forth as gold. And so Peter says the trying of our faith is precious. And then secondly, same chapter, if you look over at verse 18, this is just in recap of what we looked at last week. Verse number 18, he writes, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Verse 19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, and without spot. We looked at the thought of the precious blood of Christ. Verse 18 uses the idea of redemption and the thought of uh, being enslaved. Uh, As many as 50 million people under the Roman Empire were enslaved. And as a slave, you had the opportunity, either through your own means or someone else's means, to purchase your freedom. You, You would be redeemed. And he makes the statement that we were not redeemed with gold, with silver, like a slave in the Roman Empire would be being bought from their master, but with something far more valuable, being the precious blood of Christ. And we looked at that thought there, that the blood of Christ is precious. Chapter 1 gives us two of our thoughts, uh, the trying of our faith being precious, the blood of Christ being precious, Now, looking forward at the remaining ones, look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, maybe just a page over in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, three times in just a few verses, the word precious is used, all referring to the same thing. Look, if you would, in verse number, let's start in verse number 3. It says, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a lively, or excuse me, living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and 
precious. Verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up as spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And then verse number 7. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. The third thing that we see Peter telling us is something that is precious, something that is valuable, is Christ our cornerstone. A couple times in this verse we see this thought in verse number 6. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Down at the end of verse 7, it says, the same is made the head of the corner. We'll get into this thought of the cornerstone in just a couple minutes, but I want you to notice a couple things regarding Christ the cornerstone. In verse number 4, verse number 4, we notice three things regarding Christ. We see that Christ is the living stone, to whom coming as unto a living Stone. I love this verse in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, you don't have to turn there. It's verse number 18. It is Christ as he is speaking uh, to John at the beginning of this letter. And he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. He makes a statement. He says, I am he that liveth was dead, and yet I am alive forevermore. He is the living stone. Regardless of what a skeptic may think of Christianity and our beliefs, one thing that they cannot do is point somewhere to a grave where Christ is. They may come up with different explanations and different, uh, different attempts to explain that away, but they cannot point to a spot, to a grave, to a tomb, where they can say, that's where the body of Christ is, and we can call this finished. They cannot do that because he is alive. He is the living stone. He was dead and is alive forevermore. We also see that he is the chosen stone. Verse number four says, uh, a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. I love this thought of being the chosen stone. And it's the idea that this whole situation with Christ coming and dying for our sins and redeeming us was not God's plan B. It wasn't like in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of, this, of the fruit and sin entered in the world, that God had to step back and rethink everything and come up with a new plan. No, we're told that Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's plan. Matthew chapter 12, if you're there looking in verse number 15, it says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence. Great multitudes followed them, and he healed them all, charged them that they should not make him known. Look at verse 17, that it might be fulfilled. This is quoting now back to Isaiah, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Look at verse 18, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall shew judgment to the Gentiles. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. He's the chosen stone. I'm reminded of a couple times in Jesus' earthly ministry 
where the voice of God came down and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. At his baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was God giving that authority. Is the chosen stone there. And then back in 1 Peter, if you kept your marker there, 1 Peter chapter 2 once again. The third thing we see is our thought that we are looking at is that Christ is the precious stone. Verse 4 ends, but chosen of God and precious. That idea of the valuable, the esteem that we put on it, it is a precious stone. In this passage that we read of 1 Peter, Peter himself is quoting back to two Old Testament passages. We're not going to turn there because they're quoted pretty much word for word here in these passages, but it is Isaiah chapter 28 and it is Psalms chapter 118. Uh, and both of these are referring to Christ as the cornerstone. With that cornerstone, there are two sides to that. We'll get to the cornerstone in just a moment, but before that, notice his rejection. Look what it says in verse number four. To whom coming as unto a lively stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Then skip down to verse number seven. About halfway through, it says, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Disallowed is not a word that we use often in our vocabulary. It's not a very common word. It means to reject, to bring about disapproval. To reject, to bring about disapproval. This thought here is that Christ came as the cornerstone for the Jews, but the Jewish people rejected him. Turn to the book of Acts. Keep your finger here. We're going to be looking at a few different verses. He became a stumbling stone for the Jewish people. Acts chapter 4, interestingly enough, this is one of Peter's messages in Acts. It's after... Uh, Pentecost is after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate when they are brought before the Pharisees, the scribes, the whole religious leaders. Acts chapter 4, verse number 10, in the middle of this, he'll actually quote the same verses. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, Doth this man stand here before you? This is the stone, here's the quote, which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. For the Jews, they could not wrap their mind around a savior who was not coming as a political leader. They wanted a Messiah to come overthrow Rome to overthrow the oppressors, to reestablish Israel like David, like Solomon, to bring about that physical deliverance. And when Christ came rather preaching a spiritual message, a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God rather than a kingdom on earth, a spiritual salvation rather than physical deliverance, they rejected him. Peter points that out. He says, whom ye crucified. And he points out to the Jewish leaders that this is the one you rejected. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. And we'll see this same thought here. Romans chapter 9. 
Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, all focus on the nation of Israel and their place in God's plan. Romans chapter 9, at the end of the chapter, verse number 30, we'll read down a couple verses. Paul writes, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, how come? Verse 32, because they saw it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Paul lays out the same situation here, where the Jewish people could not get past uh, the message that Christ was bringing, and, he, they, and Christ became a stumbling block to the Jewish people. But for us who believe, he is our cornerstone. He is our cornerstone. Turn to Ephesians while you're turning there. Ephesians chapter 2. A cornerstone is a very significant piece of a building. If you've ever seen either an old church building or, or oftentimes old government buildings, there will be a certain stone on one of the corners that will be larger. Sometimes it will be a different color. Oftentimes a date or a name will be engraved into it. And that is the cornerstone. It's a very ceremonial uh, time when that is laid. The ground has been broken. The cornerstone has been laid. But it's more than just a ceremonial piece. It is a very key part of the structure because the rest of the building is built square to that cornerstone. That cornerstone has to be set exactly where they want it with the orientation exactly how they want it uh, pitched because every other wall is going to be built in reference to where that cornerstone is laid. And Christ is our cornerstone. If you're in Ephesians chapter 2, Look at verse number 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God, through the Spirit. It's referring here to the, the body of Christ being built up as a building. And there's a foundation laid. It says the apostles, the, the prophets, the early church there in Acts. But all of those are only built, are only laid in relation to Christ as the cornerstone. He is the one who determines the way things are going. He is the one who determines the way this, this building is being built. He is the rock of the foundation. Everything pivots around Christ. Christ is our cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of our faith. He's the cornerstone of our church. He's the cornerstone of our whole life when it comes to our relationship with God. Christ is our cornerstone. He is that, that precious, as Peter says in chapter 2, he is that precious cornerstone, something valuable, something highly esteemed. Back in 1 Peter, 
or excuse me, 2 Peter now, 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we see the trial of our faith is precious. We see the blood of Christ is precious, our redemption price. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are told that our cornerstone being Christ is precious. Now we skip over to 2 Peter, just a few pages over. Both of these are very short books. 1 Peter chapter 1, and in the very first verse, we are told of something else that is precious. Simon Peter, it says in verse 1, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are told that our faith is precious. I love the phrase that it's used. It uses, he, he uses the statement, like precious faith with us. That thought there being that the exact same faith that we believe, the same salvation that we have is the same thing that Peter had, the same thing that the other apostles had, the same thing that the early church had. It is like precious faith. It is the same faith. That is the same faith that you and I have today. Notice in verse number one, our faith is centered in and around the person of Christ. Twice in verse number one, he draws our attention to Christ. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. The end of the verse says, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Twice in that verse, he draws our attention. He reminds us that the focus of our faith is Jesus Christ our Savior. In 2 Peter alone, five times, the word Savior is used in association with Christ. That reminder that it is only through Him that our salvation is coming. We looked at one in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we're not going to be looking at the context of each of these verses, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 2, verse 20 says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 3 says, That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken, verse number 2, by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In three chapters, five times, Peter draws the attention back to Christ, our Savior. He is the focus of our faith. We already mentioned back in 1 Peter the precious blood of Christ. Now we see the precious faith that we have in Christ. A couple things that our faith brings us. Uh, firstly, in verse number one, we see our faith brings us righteousness. To them, it says in verse number one, that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith brings us righteousness. Turn over to the book of Philippians. While you're turning there, we are told many times that our righteousnesses, our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. It's told in Isaiah, it's told in the prophets. 
Romans chapter 3 reiterates this thought that there is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We know this thought that in ourselves dwelleth no good thing. We have no righteousness to present of ourselves. Rather, we need someone else's righteousness being Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse number 9. I love this verse. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul says, I don't have my own righteousness. The only righteousness that I could have would come through the law. And all of us have fallen short. All of us have broken that law. And our righteousness is stained. It is not up to par. We have fallen short of the glory of God. He says, I don't have my own righteousness. Rather, I have the righteousness which is of God by faith. Righteousness through Christ. Our faith brings us righteousness. And then back in... uh, Uh, 2 Peter, the following verse, verse number 2, we see righteousness comes, or our faith brings us righteousness. Uh, Our faith brings us grace. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a number of different definitions that we could give for grace. There are alliterations, God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, Maybe my favorite one is God uh, giving us what we do not deserve. But But the grace of God is through our faith. Turn over to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. Our faith brings the righteousness of Christ. Our faith brings the grace of God. Romans chapter 5, verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if the offense, for excuse me, for if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses to justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. We know the verses, Ephesians chapter 2, by grace are we saved through faith. Our faith is the access to the amazing grace of God in our lives. And then lastly, we see that through our faith, we have peace. We have peace. Verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1 says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. John chapter 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross, he made this famous statement, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul writes of the peace that passeth all understanding. And through our faith we have that peace With God, when we have the peace of God in our lives. Our faith is a precious, precious thing. And we could go on and on 
about what it brings in our lives, the grace of God in our lives, the righteousness of God, uh, the peace of God in our hearts. Peter says our faith is precious. We should hold tight to it. We should value it. We should esteem the faith that we have. The last thing that Peter tells us is precious is also in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 4. We'll start reading in verse number 3, just about where we left off a moment ago. Peter writes, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertaineth unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Look at verse number 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter tells us that we are given great and precious promises. Precious promises. We could spend all night going over the promises of God. I just want to draw your attention to a few. Grab your Bibles, put a marker in 2 Peter if you don't have it already. We're going to look at just a few, just a handful of the promises of God. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, if you would turn there. The Bible is full of incredible, incredible promises that we are given. Luke chapter 24. Towards the end of the book, as Christ is preparing to, to, for his farewell with his disciples, look at verse number 49. He says, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. As we look through the book of Acts, we know that that promise was the indwelling of the Spirit. It occurred at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And the, the Spirit living inside you and I, what an incredible promise that is. No one else in all of history outside of this, this period from Pentecost to us has had the privilege, the opportunity of having the Holy Spirit of God permanently living inside our hearts. What an amazing promise of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We have the indwelling of the Spirit as a promise from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at the end of the chapter. We're actually going to read down through Verse 1 of chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, uh, beginning in verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Look at verse 18. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now look at chapter 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises... Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's an important thing 
to sometimes remember that the chapter and verse divisions were not in the letter that Paul wrote. They were added later. And so oftentimes a thought will continue through where we typically will stop reading. And that is what is happening here. He says, having therefore these promises, referring back to the end of chapter 6, which is talking about us being the sons and daughters of God with having God as our Father. What an amazing promise that is, that when we are saved, God is our Father. John chapter 1 tells us that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. God is our Father. That is a promise that we have. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. We have the promise of God our Father. 2 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verse number 1. Paul writes, Paul an apostle. Mm, no, excuse me, did I say 2 Timothy? I'm in 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. We have the promise of of eternal life. He says the promise of life. You don't have to turn there, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 25 says, and this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. We could go through a number of different verses. John chapter 3, verse 16, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible. And we could go on and on regarding this thought that we have the promise of eternal life. According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. James chapter 1, a couple books over to your right. James chapter 1, these promises that we have are precious. Hold to them. They should be highly valued, esteemed. John, uh, excuse me, James chapter 1, verse number 2. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, uh, nope, that's not right. It's not James chapter 1, verse 2. I apologize. I will read the verse for you. I have the wrong reference. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. We have the promise of rewards in heaven. And we could go through all the different areas in the Bible where we are promised that thought of rewards in heaven. And then, if you still have your marker in 2 Peter, turn to chapter 3. Hopefully I have the right reference here. 2 Peter chapter 3. Yes, 2 Peter chapter 3, the end of the book there. Verse number 13. 2 Peter 3, 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We have the promise of his return. We have the promise of his coming. Revelation ends with, lo, I come quickly in chapter 21. And the promise is there of Christ's return and, and the restoration of all the evil and the overthrowing, the final judgment of all the evil and the, the bringing in of his 
kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We have the promise of his coming. And we could go on and on. We could go on and on through the pages of scripture. Um, And I just went through looking specifically where we see the word promise appearing in scripture. But there are many others that don't use specifically that word, but are promises from God. Romans chapter 8, 28 Uh, All things working together for good for them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. We could go on and on of the promises that God has given us, and they are indeed precious. They're precious. It's worth noting that our promises that are precious are located within the pages of our Bible. Our Bible should be something that is precious to us because it contains the words of God for you and I. One last verse on this thought of promises. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, we could could go on and on about the promises of God in his word. But I think it's worth noting where the promises of God are summed up. Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among us by you, or among you by us, excuse me, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. Look at verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. All the promises of God are summed up in the person of Christ. Remember, we already looked at the thought that that is the focus of our faith. He is our cornerstone. Uh, It is his blood that redeemed us. And now the promises of God are in him. I love that verse. The promises of God in him are yea and in him amen. Peter tells us, that the promises that we have of God are precious. He calls them great and precious promises. Great and precious promises. Peter tells us several things that are precious. Remember, precious, highly esteemed, valuable. And in in these things that are precious are where we should be putting our focus, putting our priority. And as I was thinking over these, sort of drawing them together into conclusion, I came up with these little thoughts of, if these things are precious, then what do we do with them? If the trials of our faith are precious, we should embrace them. It's so easy to push away the trials of God in our lives, But Peter tells us that those are precious. Those are purifying. The trying of your faith is precious. When the trying comes then, rather than resisting it, rather than pushing it away, we should embrace that trying as something that God is bringing in our lives to purify us. If the blood of Christ is precious, then we should be eternally thankful for it. The context there, Peter telling them, You are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with something far more valuable, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
that ought to drive our thankfulness for it. If the blood of Christ is precious, we should be thankful for it. If Christ, our cornerstone, is precious, then we should be confident in our foundation. Uh, it's that having the foundation on a rock rather than the sand. We can be sure that our foundation is not going to shift, is not going to move. Why? Because it's built on Christ. He is our cornerstone. He is the determining factor of the building of our faith. If Christ is our cornerstone, uh, then we can be confident in our foundation. If our faith is precious, then we should be sharing it. If our faith is such a wonderful thing, such a valuable thing, then our goal should be to share it with as many as possible. Our goal should be uh, to, to expose as many people as possible. If it's such a valuable thing to us, then we shouldn't be keeping it hidden. We shouldn't be keeping it under wraps, but it should be shared with others. And then if the promises that we are given are precious, then we should be claiming them. We should be claiming them, the promises of God that are given in our scripture. We should be praying according to those promises. James tells us that we have not because we ask not or we're asking amiss. We're asking that we would consume it upon our own lusts. But if we are praying and our praying is lined up with the promises that we see in scripture, God promises that he will hear and answer our prayers. If our trials of our faith are precious, we should embrace them. If the blood of Christ is precious, then we should be thankful for it. If Christ, our cornerstone, is precious, then we should be confident in our foundation. If our faith is precious, then we should be sharing it. And if the promises we are given are precious, then we should be claiming them. Peter lays out these several different things that he chooses to use this word precious. Again, we looked last week at a bit of who Peter was and a bit of his background and how it's an unusual word for someone of Peter's character, Peter's caliber, to use. That idea of being emotionally invested, almost a sentimental word there. And if Peter is telling us that these things are precious, then these should have a priority. These should be valued in our lives, the trial of our faith the blood of Christ, Christ the cornerstone of our lives, our faith and our promises ought to be precious to us, ought to be held in high regard, ought to be held in high esteem in our lives. Let's go ahead and pray this evening. Lord, we love you.